you have your Bible here today, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Now we're thinking about Thanksgiving, aren't we? It's just a few days away. And so I thought it would be good to visit this passage here in Numbers 11 to remind us of Thanksgiving. The title of our message today, Grumbling into a Graveyard. But I heard about a a New York stockbroker who had a midlife crisis. He decided that he could no longer endure the greed and the high stress of his job, and so he decided to do something quite radical. Uh, The man quit his job, he sold his home, and then he joined a monastery out in the desert, and he had to take a vow of silence. So on the day that the old city slicker moved into the monastery, the head abbot explained the vow of silence to him. He said, my new brother, now only once in a year, on the anniversary of you joining our monastery, only then will you be allowed to speak two words, no more. All the other days of the year, you have to remain silent. And so, after the first year, the man was there. He was called before his superiors, and they asked him, Do you have anything to say? And the man gave his two words, Food, bad. Another year went by. The man had the opportunity to voice his thoughts again. And they asked him, It's time now for you to say your two words. What do you have to say? And the man said, Bed hard. Well, another year went by. The man stood there before his elder council of monks again, and they asked him, Here you are. You've been here three years. Still under your vow of silence, and the time has come for you to speak. You can say your two words. What would you like to say? And the man stood up, and he said, I quit. (laughs) And then the abbot answered. He said, Well, that doesn't surprise me. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. (laughs) So... That also reminds me of the, uh, the pitiful wife who tried to bend over backwards to make her demanding and unreasonable husband happy. The wife had been trying and trying and trying to win the man's heart. She heard a sermon listening to her pastor one Sunday about the power of winning folk over through kindness. And so she thought that sounded like a good idea. So she said, I'm going to kill him with kindness. So she asked him the next day, she said, what would you like for breakfast? She said, I'll fix you anything that you want. The husband said, here's what I want. I want two eggs. I want one scrambled and one poached. I want a piece of toast with butter on one side and jelly on the other, strawberry jelly. He said, I want three strips of crispy bacon and I want black coffee. She said, it's done. So she went in the kitchen. She started working. The man was sitting there waiting for his plate. She finished it, put it before him, waited anxiously for his approval. The husband looked down at the food. He snorted. He said, woman, can't you do anything right? She said, what's wrong? He said, you scrambled the wrong egg. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Now that sounds outrageous until, friend, you have raised children. And when you raise children, then you begin to understand what complaining and whining is really all about. Caitlin and I have watched our children melt down over the slightest inconvenience. For instance, pouring milk in the blue cup and not the red cup. That's a capital offense, by the way, if you didn't know it. Not letting Daniel wear shorts on a cold, blustery winter day. 
That has incited complaining and whining. How about pitching a fit because the Wi-Fi is out and they can't get on their tablet or they can't get on Netflix? How about throwing a tantrum because I wouldn't let our baby eat a bar of soap. She thought it was a cookie. I had to explain it to her. This is not a cookie. You can't eat it. And because I took it away from her, there was complaining. I like what the American author Mark Twain quipped about and tongue-in-cheek. He said this, Don't complain or talk about all your problems. Eighty percent of people don't care, and the other twenty percent, well, they think you deserve it. <laughs> now, it seems odd this morning that I would talk about the sin of complaining. Because here in just a few days, we're going to gather with our family and friends, and we're going to get around the dinner table. We're going to eat, count our blessings, and give thanks. But it seems that in this country, where you have people riding week in and week out in the street, protesting over how bad things are in the greatest country that's ever been, we are known in this nation more for our grumbling than our gratitude. After all, we are the people who invented something called Black Friday, where the day after we give thanks, we fight and cuss each other at the store for a discount on a Snuggie or a flat screen TV. Kind of ironic, isn't it? But here in Numbers chapter 11, we have a convicting story about how seriously God hates the sin of complaining, of grumbling, of having an unthankful spirit. Now you can be assured that Moses heard a campaign of complaining as he led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And that's the context of this story. In fact, Numbers chapter 11 is really a case of history repeating because just three days after God's miraculously delivered His people from the Red Sea, they complained in Exodus 15 that they said, we have nothing to drink. And God provided for them. Moses struck the rock and they drank in the wilderness. Well, here in Numbers chapter 11, they have just left Mount Sinai. They're three days out of Mount Sinai. They've just received the Ten Commandments. And wouldn't you know, as they leave that blessed place, that now God's people start griping again. And this time, the moaning sounded something like this. Man, I can't stand manna. I'm sick of eating manna every day. And so, that was the complaint. And in this message, we're going to examine Thanksgiving, but we're going to do it in the reverse you know, gratitude and grumbling are two sides of the same coin. One side leads to life, and one side leads to death, as we will see in this passage. But we're going to look at thanksgiving from the reverse. And I think in this text, it's going to help us to bite our tongue when the next time comes that we feel like we want to whine. So there's several lessons that we can take and put into our lives here today. Number one is this. I want you to see that a complainer ignores God's provision. A complainer ignores God's provision. Read with me verses 1 through 3 and you'll see this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp... Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. And so the name of that place was called Tibera. 
because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now here we have God giving His people a warning shot. He scorches some of the ground on the outside of the camp. You might think of it like a father who is firing up the backside of a rebellious child. And in like manner, the Lord here has a show of force, not only as a way of correcting His rebellious people, but a threat of worse discipline if they didn't straighten up. We see here that the problem was the complaining, the murmuring, the constant whining in the camp. Think of all the Israelites had seen up to this point though. Before God sends the fire, think of all the miracles that they have witnessed. They had seen God decimate the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time, Egypt. He sent ten plagues and even humbled Pharaoh. God rolled out the red carpet as they got to the Red Sea so that they might walk across on dry ground causing those waters to part. He drowned Pharaoh's mighty army when the waters came collapsing back down again. And six days a week, these folk witnessed a miracle with the morning dew. Every time the sun rose on those six days, there was manna on the ground. All they had to do was go out and pick it up and eat it for the day. They drank pure water from the rock that Moses gave them. And don't forget God's version of GPS that they saw every day and every night they had the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night so these folk had seen time and time again day in and day out that God was a faithful God that God wasn't going to leave them to die in the wilderness that he was going to provide for them every step of the way and yet when they got here in the wilderness isn't it interesting how something happens and they get there in the hot sun It bakes their brains and amnesia sets in. Somehow, God's people had forgotten the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God just after three days of being there at Mount Sinai. Kind of remind me of a story that I heard about a a crusty old codger who was at the post office and he was standing in line. The old man went up to the desk and he handed the postal worker a card. And he said, sir, he said, my hand is unsteady. I can't write very well anymore these days. If I told you what to write down on that card, would you write it down for me? So the postal worker said, sure. What would you like me to write? And so he dictated a message and he wrote it down on that postcard. He said, is there anything else I can do for you, sir? The old man paused, grabbed the card, looked at what had written, kind of, furrowed his brow a little bit he said yes put one more thing at the bottom of that card P.S. please excuse the poor handwriting (laughs) and then he handed it back to the office worker the point of that is this why is it that we often complain to those or about those who do the most for us just as God's people complained to the one who had sustained them and brought them out of slavery see friend we become ungrateful when we forget to remember all that the Lord has done for us. You know what Psalm says, Psalm 68, 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us down with benefits. You know what an ungrateful person is? An ungrateful person is somebody with a short memory and a long list of complaints. They forget of all the miracles, all the blessings, all the things that God has just 
poured upon their life. I don't know about you, friend, but I'm blessed. Uh, I didn't have to sleep outside under the stars not one time last week. I didn't have to go to a dumpster and forage around for something to eat. I didn't have to worry and fear and anxiety about what would happen if I did get the virus and I did die because I know God. I know Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. I'm born again. I'm heaven bound. My sins have been washed away. And friend, that makes me grateful today. That makes me thankful that I don't have to fear death. You see, friend, it's easy to do when you're in a wilderness journey. When you're in uncertain territory, when times get hard, kind of like the year we've been living in. 2020, if there was ever a year for complaining and grumbling, this one would have to take the gold medal. The longer that this ordeal keeps grinding on, don't you find yourself getting into that place where all you want to do is complain? Man, I wish we could do this. I can't wait until that. And before you know it, your spirit's in the wrong place. We can suffer from a recency bias. God, what have you done for me? recently what have you done for me today forgetting about all of his great benefits that he gives us you see the problems of today can begin to look worse than the problems of yesterday that's what happened with the children of israel here they forgot what god had saved them from the place he had brought them out of and friend we can do that too in our own lives you think back about who you were and the low point at where you were when God found you and God cleaned you up and God changed your destiny. It's easy to forget about those things. And surely the God who made a way for us yesterday will be the God who makes a way for us today and yes, even into tomorrow. You see, a complainer ignores God's provision. Secondly, I want you to see this here today. A complainer injures God's people. What do you mean by that, Derek? Well, I'll show you here in verses 4 through 9. Let's read it. Verse 4 says this, Now the rabble was among them, and they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. You ever taken your kids on a long car ride, a vacation or so on? And it starts from the back seat, doesn't it? Are we there yet? i got to stop and go to the bathroom. Don't touch me. Stay on your side. Daddy, why are we going so slow? Are we there yet? It never ends. If you've been there, you can understand what Moses was dealing with. Verse 5, listen to this. Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Yeah, but you were slaves. The cucumbers and the melons, the leeks and the onions. Oh, and the garlic. They must all had garlic breath. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like bedellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. God's firestorm that he sent just a few verses ago quieted the whiners for a little bit. But a few days later, we read here that they began hating on the manna. Now, I can identify. Those of you who know me well, you know 
there's one food that I really will turn my nose up. I can't take squash. Y'all know this, and you always give me a hard time about it. You always get your digs in. But I want you to know, Clifford, I grew squash in my garden this summer, and I gave it away to all you folk who like to give me a hard time about it. But here's the thing. The reason I can't take squash is because one summer, my mom and daddy will attest to it, we had a bumper crop of squash in our garden. I'm telling you, we had, we had squash coming out our ear holes. And we had it every way that you could possibly fix it. Fried squash, squash casserole, squash souffle. And I can remember as a kid walking in to the kitchen in the evening and dreading asking my mama, Mama, what are we eating for dinner? Well, we've got this squash here. We can't let it go bad. Bless God. He's, he's provided for us again. you got to be kidding, Mom. That's like the 19th night in a row. Can we have okra or something else? That's the way the Israelites felt. I bet you Zephyrus cookbook had 101 manna recipes, every which way that you could figure out how to fix it. Manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna at supper time. So that's when the nonstop belly aching began. Now this text right here shows us several harmful side effects that emerged among God's people as the complaining of began. What does it do? Well, here's how it injures God's people. Complaining indulges our flesh. That's the first thing it does. Look at what it says in verse 4. The rabble was among them and had a, watch this, strong craving. Now, that's an interesting Hebrew word there in our text. If you could read it, it's the word tava, And it means this, an uncontrollable desire for something usually in a sinful way. Interesting word study about this word desire here in the text. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 3, 6 when Eve is tempted to eat that forbidden fruit. It's the same word there. And complaining, it's hardwired into our nature. That's why it's so easy for us to do it. We're sinners. And when our sinful desires aren't met, all of a sudden adults turn into toddlers, don't they? And complaining is a sin because here's what we do. Here's what we say when we begin that. We say, Lord, what you've given me is not enough. Lord, what you've provided, I don't like it anymore. Lord, what you've done, I wish you could have more. And that's really where the heart of it is. It indulges our flesh. The flesh nature which always wants something else, always wants more, is never satisfied. So it indulges our flesh. But then notice this, complaining influences followers. It influences followers. Notice what it says again in verse 4. The word that they use there that's interesting is rabble. Your Bible may say mixed multitude. That's important. You see, what you need to understand is that complaining is more contagious than the coronavirus. And how this epidemic of ingratitude began in the children of Israel, is that it, it started with the group called the mixed multitude, or the rabble. And then it started with them, and it went over and corrupted the Israelites. Now, who is this mixed multitude, or this rabble, as the Bible refers to? They are not full-blooded Hebrews. 
you have to go back to Exodus chapter 12. When the children of Israel are leaving Egypt, on the eve of that Passover, a group of people hitchhiked with Moses and the folk, and they went out of Egypt with them. They were Gentiles. They were probably slaves as well. And they saw this as an opportunity for them to get out. But they didn't know Jehovah God the way the Hebrew people did. They were really along for the ride. And so they just kind of hooked on with Moses and the crowd and went with them in the wilderness journey. And friend, that's what I want to point out to you, that complaining often brings other people into more complaining. You know, the church has a mixed multitude in it too, doesn't it? The church has a mixed multitude. There's three kinds of folk in every single church. There's believers, there's unbelievers, and there's make-believers. Friend, not everybody that's sitting on the church pew is saved and born again and knows Jesus Christ. I'm just here to tell you that just because you go to church doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what I've noticed about being in ministry? Often the worst complainers or the worst critics in the church are the counterfeits who do the least and talk the most. <laughs> and that same principle is true outside the church as well. If you've worked a regular job out in the world, isn't it easy to get around people you work with and the complaining starts? Did you hear what so-and-so said? Man, look at what the boss made me do. And the complaining starts. I hate my job. And you can get trapped in that, can't you? Around the water cooler with family and friends, people you know. And they start that negativity. And if, friend, if you hang around a person who's like that, who's constantly negative, always unhappy, always talking about what could be better, pretty soon, you know what will happen? That will begin to infect you as well. It will. And it will happen in a church, too. Kind of reminds me of the story that I heard about. A, I heard about a young pastor had been preaching very long, and he had suffered repeated attacks from a very negative and critical lady in his church. Every week, he got at least a phone call or an ugly email from this lady. She complained about everything. I don't like your preaching. Your sermons are too short. Sermons are too long. <laughs> don't like the tie that he wore. Don't like his leadership skills. Don't like his policy. And this lady just criticized and complained about this pastor all the time. And her negativity started to infect others. And so the young pastor called an older man in the ministry, a mentor, and asked him what to do. He told him some good advice. He said, here's what you do. Next time that lady starts getting on your case... You do this right here, and I guarantee you it'll solve the problem. So, sure enough, next Sunday he preached. He's waiting outside the church. Here come the old lady, shaking hand. She said, uh, well, pastor, you know, that sermon could have been better. And, and then she started in on complaining. And the guy remembered the advice. He started to get down on his hands and knees. He got down right in front of the lady. She said, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting ready to pray. Dear God, I thank you that this lady is not my wife. <laughs> and I guarantee you that ended the complaining right there. Maybe some of us need to practice some social distancing with complainers. Or at least throw some cold water on them and let them know, hey... I don't need that negativity. I'm blessed. I know the Lord. 
I've got a good church. I've got so much going for me. If God blesses me one more time, I don't think I'll be able to stand it. And friend, that's how you put an end to the negativity and the complaining. And you can do it here in church. When people start bad-mouthing somebody or they don't like a decision that I've made, hey, you can help me out and stop it right there. We all have the power to build a church or destroy a church, and it's that muscle that's in between our teeth. It's called the tongue. And that's how it started in Israel. Complaining influences followers. But then look at this. Complaining inhibits our focus. It inhibits our focus. Look at what they talk about in verses 5 and 6. The people of Israel wept. Oh, that we had meat to eat. Here it is, verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. You know what they did? They made their case by going back to the quote-unquote good old days. Oh, when we were in Egypt, we had it made. We had leeks, onions, we had other delicacies, everything that we could desire. Never mind the fact that they were slaves. Never mind the fact they had to endure the taskmaster's whip and work themselves to the bone making bricks for Pharaoh's pyramids. And friend, listen to me. That's the deceptive trick of ingratitude. Ingratitude gets you to focus more on what you don't have than what you do have already. And when you lose focus about that, your whole life is thrown into a tailspin. Let me tell you a story. Man, God absolutely took me to the woodshed one day. It was when I went on a mission trip a few years ago to Honduras. Now, for those of you that's never been to this country or been out of the United States, let me clue you into something. We've got it made here in this country. The most blessed, most prosperous, most free country. I don't care what the mob in the street says. This is still the best place to live. And folks, you don't see them lining up to move to Iran or move to China. They still want to come to the United States. That's why all of that's going on in our country is so important. Because if America goes down, where's the rest of the world going to run to? It's still a great country, despite all the problems that we have. I was in Honduras. Absolute poverty. People just living day to day. Don't know where their next meal is going to come from. People living in shacks made of plastic and cardboard and wood, whatever they can find. The hotel that we were staying at had a dinky little shower head. And you talk about the shower stall was like this. You had to get in and just... And when you turned the water on, it was just barely a trickle. <laughs> I mean, you had to work hard to get wet in that shower. And it was coming out just a trickle. And I was so frustrated by that because one morning I woke up and I had to take basically a bird bath. And in my mind, in my spirit, I started complaining. Well, we got in our truck. We were headed to our first village where we were going to do our ministry. And along the way, boy, God absolutely whooped me. Sometimes we need a whooping, by the way, even preachers, especially preachers. We were going to where the village we were going to minister to, and along the way on this old bumpy road, I looked over. Never forget it as long as I live. There was a little girl, probably about Abigail's age, standing in a mud hole about up to her shins. She had a bar of white ivory soap, and she had a bucket. 
And she was standing in a mud hole. She'd take that bucket and pour that muddy water over her head. And then she'd do the best that she could to give herself a bath. And when I saw that, God said, Why are you whining and complaining, son? Look at how the rest of these folk have to live. And God let me know right then and there that I had a problem in my spirit. And I had to do some repenting that day. You see, ungrateful folks miss out on joy. They miss out on contentment and peace because their life is always focused on the next thing or what they don't have or the wrong thing. And when you're focused on what you don't have, friend, let me tell you, you can't become the person God wants you to be and God can't get you to the place where He wants to take you. Because a lot of these folks who started complaining here in the wilderness never made it to the promised land. They didn't get to the place where God really wanted to take them. And haven't you noticed this? I know you have in your life. Folk that are negative, folk that are always down, they're always complaining, those folk never really get anywhere in life. You know why? Because it's always somebody else's fault. Or they're always a victim. And that's how this ingratitude thing can really handicap your life. Winston Churchill said it like this. He said, you'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. Pretty good advice, isn't it? Last thing under this heading, notice complaining incapacitates the faithful. Jump down to verse 10 and I'll show you what I mean here. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans and everyone at the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servants? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you would lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I not conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom? As a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers, where am I to get meat? To all of these people, for they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. My goodness. The constant complaining absolutely sapped Moses of strength. Now notice in this lament, there's exhaustion, there's frustration, there's sarcasm, there's discouragement. You see, all of the criticism, all the carping had worn Moses down to the point where he said, I'm done, I want to give up. God, if this is what I've got to look forward to, just kill me now. You know, one of the most criticized presidents in American history was Abraham Lincoln. He's revered today, but do you know that in his day he was vilified? Here's what he wrote about being in leadership and facing constant criticism. He said, if I were to try and read, much less answer all the attacks on me, this shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out right, he said, that is said against me won't amount to anything. And if the end brings me out wrong, 10,000 angels swearing I was right would make no difference. It's been said, more damage is done in a church 
from termites on the inside than woodpeckers on the outside. You know what I mean? Some churches do themselves in, not because the persecution from the outside is so bad, but because of the constant chewing away at each other that takes place on the inside. The gripers, the folk who are never happy, the folk who remember the good old days and don't want to change and don't, don't like the direction that things are going. Only God knows how many churches have been distracted and derailed and divided by complainers. And you could attribute that also in, to families and marriages and, and really a nation itself. How many good men have been chewed up and spit out by quarreling churches, by backbiting deacon boards, by naysayers who constantly keep the tongues moving? Old friend, take note of this, how God's servant was incapacitated and derailed by the complaining. Well, that's two lessons down. You need to see that a complainer, first off, ignores God's provision. And then a complainer injures God's people. And then finally today, I want you to see this as I close. A complainer incurs God's punishment. That's pretty stiff, but look at what verse 18 says. The Bible says this, Numbers chapter 11. The Bible says, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? Now drop down to verse 31 and look at this. And then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and night, and went the next day, and gathered quail. Those who gathered, gathered ten omers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And when the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. And from there the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained. My goodness, what a story. God fixed Israel's bellyaching problem by sending them, the Bible says, a month's worth of quail meat in a single day. Can you imagine how crazy these people looked out in the middle of the desert working all day and all night to gather up quail? <laughs> this had to be a sign. I mean, use your imagination. Basketfuls of birds. They were just trying to pull them in left and right. Maybe they had quail and they were stuffing them in burlap sacks. I don't know how they gathered them up. Oh, their mouths watered. I bet you they were watering as they were picking them up off the ground. How are you going to fix yours, old buddy? I'm going to grill mine. 
I think I'll boil mine in a stew. And they began to plot and think about how they were going to have that all-you-could-eat feast. The Bible says, In the moment came when they stuffed their faces, and before they could get the meat beyond their canines, the Bible says, they started dropping dead left and right. Oh, my goodness. That's the judgment of God. By the way, He's still the same God. There's not a lot of churches today that still preach that God is a holy God and a righteous God and a God of wrath and judgment. Yes, He's love and mercy and grace, but He's still a God of judgment. And you know what? There's poetic justice in all this because God gave them exactly what they wanted, didn't He? They had a craving for Egypt, and so God gave them exactly what Egypt experienced. Plagues. They didn't acknowledge God. They didn't give Him thanks. And so, in the words of Romans 1, He gave them over to their own lusts. What a warning in this passage about what happens when we get what we want. How many times do we do that? Oh, won't it be better when I have a bigger house? Won't things be better when I get paid more? Man, I wish I could drive that truck. Wish I could live in that neighborhood. Wish I could go to that school. Wish I could date that person. Oh, if I had that in my life, then I'd be complete. I'd be happy. Friend, the thing that we want won't always bring us what we think it will. You see, everything in this world, let me clue you in on to something, operates under the law of diminishing returns. Because everything in this world is tainted by the curse of sin. And when we desire more than what God has provided, what we end up doing is setting ourselves up for a big old disappointment. So woe to the man or woman who spends their day and night gathering quail. And then when they finally get a taste of it, it sours on their stomach. You say, what do you mean? I'm talking about the folk who say, I need more. A bigger house, a nicer truck, a better phone, a prettier mate. That's gathering quail. I want more, more, more. And we spend years. How many folk, how many men and women do you know who spend their whole lives exerting great energy in the workplace to gather quail, and then when they get it, they're empty. They're not happy, they're miserable, and the thing that they thought was going to bring them contentment and joy in life ends up being a curse. And here's what happened. Israel had dug their own grave. They grumbled themselves into a graveyard. Because the Bible says that place was called Kibbereth Hatavah. If you could read that in English, it means... The graves of craving. They grumbled into a graveyard. And if you spend your life toiling for quail, you'll do the same thing. Digging your own grave. You know, this episode here ends with Israel digging hundreds of graves in the desert. Think about that. The endless funerals that Moses had to preside over. Because they dropped dead where they stood. Not every story in the Bible ends with a happy ending, does it? And this is one of them. And it should leave us as readers saying, Is that it? We want more. 
We want rescue. We want hope. And friend, as I read that story and I got to the end of it, you know what I said to myself? Man, you know what this story needs? A Savior. This story needs a Savior. Think about it. As good as Moses was, courageous, obedient, patient, he still could not deliver his people from God's judgment in this instance. And what that points to is our great need as sinners. We are guilty, just as Israel is, of ingratitude and so much more. And what we need is a better intercessor. Somebody who's greater than Moses. One who can somehow step in and stay the wrathful hand of God so that we don't get what we deserve, but we get mercy. And friend, there is an answer to that. And I'm here today to tell you His name is Jesus. He's the only one who can do it. And like Moses, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Jesus felt the burden and the weight of leadership. He said in Matthew 26, it's brought me sorrow unto death. But here's the difference. Moses said, God, take my life. And Jesus said, I'm willingly laying down my life. That's the difference. He willingly laid down his life to be our sin bearer. Moses could not prevent God's judgment, but oh friend, we have a greater than Moses. We have an ultimate intercessor who went to the cross, who took the wrath of the Father so that He might dispense God's love and God's mercy to you and I so we don't get the judgment that we deserve. God doesn't leave us in the wilderness to die for our sins, but He's provided a man, a Savior, a way out, and His name is Christ Jesus. Thank God He hasn't judged us in the wilderness. Oh, but He's given us a deliverer who knows how to get us to the promised land. Somebody say amen. He gives us hope beyond sin. A hope beyond the desert and death. And friend, that's reason to be thankful today that I've got a deliverer. I've got a Savior who knows how to get me out of the problems that I've got myself into. What a great God. What a Savior we have. What Moses couldn't do, Jesus Christ can. I'm going to finish with this, leave you with a story. It comes from Corey Ten Boom, Holocaust survivor. God fixed her wagon one day when she started to complain. She told a story in one of her books about how she went to a packed auditorium in Copenhagen to tell her life story. If you haven't read her book, The Hiding Place, you need to. It's a blessing. She talked about her time in the concentration camps under Nazi Germany and how God brought her through. In her message, she quoted from Romans 12, verse 1. and She said, we need to be living sacrifices for the Lord. She said afterward, two young nurses in the crowd invited her to go to their apartment for dinner. And she accepted the gracious hospitality. But along the way, she discovered that the lady hosting the meal lived on the 10th floor of an apartment building where there was no elevator. And how many of you know, as you get older into your years, steps get harder and harder to navigate? Well, Corey was there. 
she began to struggle up the stairs, complaining in her spirit the whole way. Ten flights of stairs, right? Lord, why did you bring me this way? Guilty, I've said it before. God, I'm going to have a heart attack before I get up here to the tenth floor. She started griping. Finally, Corey Ten Boom reached the apartment. She met the parents of one of the girls. And as they sat around the table, Corey was able to give her amazing testimony again. Then she shared the gospel with the parents of that girl. And by the end of the night, those parents believed in Jesus Christ, repented of their sin, and trusted Him as Savior. You say, wow. But here's the lesson. On her way down the stairs out of the building, Corey said, I cried hot tears of conviction. God had used me despite my bitter and complaining spirit on the way up. She said, like Jonah, I begrudgingly shared God's good news and then saw a miracle of salvation. As I neared the last flight of stairs, she said, Thank you, Lord, for walking me up and down all those stairs. Forgive me of my murmuring and complaining. And next time, Lord, help me to listen to the words of my own sermon. <laughs> wow. What a passage. What a reminder. As we stand today for invitation, as Preston's coming to lead us in a, in a final song today, I wonder, you need to do some repenting in your life. You had that grumbling spirit within you this year? Spirit of ingratitude? Hey, the altar's open. You can repent. You can ask God to forgive you, and He will. He'll move you on out of that desert wilderness place. He'll renew your spirit so that you can learn to live in joy and contentment. Maybe you don't know Christ. If you don't know Jesus, then you really can't be thankful. You really don't know joy and hope like you can. So if you don't know Christ, if you need Him... Hey, the altar's open for you as well.